Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Faith and Justice Network, where we are seeking faith and learning justice because we believe the two belong together, that they lie at the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Today I'm talking with D.L. Mayfield, also known as Danielle, about Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited as an introduction to the Faith and Justice Fellowship here. Hi, Danielle. How are you? Hi, Peter. I'm very glad to see your face and to be talking to you about this book. Yeah, thanks for joining me. This is our very first podcast, so it might just be good to do a little intro. Why don't we start off by talking about who you are and what you do? Yeah, um, so I am a freelance writer. I write as D.L. Mayfield, but you know, you can know me as Danielle, and I did... Uh, the Faith and Justice program, it was called like the New Begin Fellows a few years ago. I think it was three years ago. And that's how I met you, Peter. That's how I was introduced to this amazing community. And I really, you know, it's not hyperbolic to say it changed my life. It gave me a uh, community during a time where I was, um, you know, a nice way to put it is transitioning, you know, out of my <laughs> faith community background. But mm-hmm. the reality was I was kind of getting kicked out. And I knew that was coming. You know, a lot of us, maybe not a lot, maybe there's some people listening who've had that exact same experience where, you know, how much can I sort of transgress the the boundaries and the norms of of my faith community, mine being white evangelicalism before it becomes too much and I get pushed out. And, you know, three years ago is kind of when that happened for me. And so just to have, I had been told my whole life, like, um, you know, the only people who get the Bible right (laughs) Mm. are white American U S evangelicals and, um, are very specific, uh, narrow interpretation. And so the new begin house was just such a wonderful way to, um, just be open to other perspectives and to say like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually not an ex evangelical. I I wouldn't call myself that. I'm just a person who I'm really, really truly wants to detoxify from uh, some of these really toxic elements of Christian nationalism, you know, white Mm -hmm. patriarchy, you know, heteronormativity. And I'm still a deeply religious person. And so it's just so life giving to be around other people who are on that same trajectory, right? Who want to pursue lives of justice and to see every single one of our neighbors flourish. Like that's what keeps me being a Christian. That's what keeps me coming back to the Bible is I see this personified in the life and work of Jesus, someone who is obsessed with making sure everyone's flourishing. And I I feel that same desire deep down in me. So I'm just grateful for this community. I'm grateful to be a part of it this year and do a little stuff about podcasts and and just talking to cool people and to be in conversation with all of you. Yeah, yeah. You have been on quite a journey and is reflective of not not just your unique experience, but something that many, many people in the world have also been experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so there is something really powerful and beautiful about um, our fellowship, the Faith and Justice Fellowship, where we are gathering as a community of folks who are trying to sort out questions to understand uh, what we believe, why we believe what we believe. And so it's just great to um, be in conversation with you um, about these matters. And today we're talking about Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited. And um, one of the things that always is um, astounding to me about this book is that it was written in 1949. That's uh, quite a number of years ago, um, and just sitting with that fact is a really helpful thing for thinking about our own times. 
to try and understand how we relate to Jesus and how we relate to the various faith communities that we've been part of over the course of our lives. Yeah, I think I was also struck by that, that how how old this book is. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who had this experience reading it where you're like, oh, no, it is still so relevant today, right? And that brings in me a sense of awe at how um, deep Howard Thurman's work truly is, that it can transcend, right, the moment he wrote it. And, and uh, you know, he had been thinking about this for a few years earlier, all that, so it's even older, right, than 1949. And then sort of like that deep, almost sense of disappointment of how relevant it continues to be because society has not changed. And Christianity as sort of like an organized religion of the oppressors is still very much a theme for today. So I kind of wondered, Peter, like, is is that one of the reasons why you wanted to start off this year with this book? I was just pretty curious about why this book to sort of get us get us rolling in this program. I first came across this book a year or two after I moved to San Francisco. So um, pretty late in my own spiritual and theological journey. And one of the things that I realized as I was reading this book um, here in San Francisco was, wow, like this person was here in, in this city a long time ago and uh, was trying to do the kinds of things um, as a follower of Jesus that I and people in my community um, are trying to do. And there's something both um, humbling about that, but sobering about that to realize Here's somebody who seems very wise, had great ideas, in many ways better ideas, I think a more grounded spirit, uh, a more generous spirit than, than what I find in myself and in the kinds of conversations that, that I think that um, a lot of Christians are having in our time, and also to realize, looking at the state of our city and our world, not much has changed. And um, that's kind of sobering and humbling to realize um, that uh, I'm part of that history and to learn from what has gone before is, is I think, really helpful. Yeah, I love that you bring it back to your city of San Francisco because there's definitely times where I was reading this book and it did become pretty concretely embedded in like geography because he mentions even like a neighborhood here in Portland where I'm from, Vanport, which was flooded. And that's where, you know, African-Americans were only allowed to buy property. And he kind of talks about that, that tragedy. So yeah, I was like, wow. And I didn't know about him pastoring a, uh, what would he call it, a multi-ethnic church? It's probably not what yeah, he called it I back then. One of the first interracial churches in the country. In San Francisco, I just think mm-hmm. that is so interesting. And I, you know, I had not, I'd read Jesus and the Disinherited a few years ago, but it didn't sink as deeply into my bones as it did this time around. And I mostly knew him as the person who inspired uh, Martin Luther King Jr. because I had heard like mm-hmm. Dr. King carried around a copy of this particular book, like with him at all times. Um, mm-hmm. So that was sort of how I, and, and maybe other people know him as like, okay, he inspired this other person whose works we we love. Um, but I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about, you know, just Howard Thurman's background. You mentioned the church in San Francisco, but I know he did a lot of other stuff too. Yeah, great question. Um, and as we read books like this, it's helpful to know about the person behind uh, behind the writing. And so I jotted down a few things about Howard Thurman's life that I think would be helpful context and background for us. Howard Thurman was a pastor and theologian as well as a mystic and poet. He was maybe most consequentially mentored to an entire generation of civil rights activists. 
He was not himself an activist, but his work ignited and fueled the work of activism. And uh, it's, I think it's a really interesting lesson in the different parts we might have to play that distinction between um, an intellectual or a mystic or a pastor versus an activist. And then uh, a couple of um, dates here and different positions that he had over the course of his life. From 1932 to 1944, he was dean of the chapel at Howard University. 1944 to 1953, Minister of the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco. And then from 1953 to 65, he was Dean of Marsh Chapel and Professor in the School of Theology at Boston University. So a prolific author and someone who had wide-ranging influence. I think, in, as you mentioned, uh, in maybe one of the most specific or um, significant ways, he was a mentor to an entire generation, uh, a cohort of civil rights leaders, and the impact that he had on their lives reverberate today. Yeah, and, and that brings up like some of the beautiful things about this book. And then, um, you know, there's actually a little bit of tension that I read um, when mm. I'm reading this book. But uh, at the beginning, you know, just the very central question he raises, like, what does Jesus mean? to the disinherited, to people who have their backs against the wall. I mean, it's just such a profoundly important question that I was like, I still don't hear enough people asking this, right? I, I, you know, growing up within mm. the church, I did not hear this concrete, you know, kind of question raised. So I just think it's such an amazing introduction into what this, you know, next year is going to be for all of us. Like Jesus needs to mean something for the disinherited right now, for this to be, mean anything. I mean, that's where I'm coming from, Peter. <laughs> the mm -hmm. other people yeah. are, are not quite there, but I'm like, it has to mean something. And I think that's something that is echoed all throughout scripture. And it was just, you know, amazing to see how Howard Thurman kind of wrote about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, so one of the gifts that I, Howard Thurman gives to us is um, a deep awareness of his own location in time and place. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that he is writing to a very particular audience or about a, a very particular kind of people and their experiences, um, and then the ways in which he locates Jesus as well, right, as someone who um, was a Jewish person, someone who was a poor person and someone who was a member of a minority community. Like those are really significant parts of Jesus's life that are important for us to remember. But so often we, we see Jesus as a spiritual guru mm -hmm. or leader or the son of God and um, in many ways disembody him from his very specific particular life experiences. And, and I appreciate how you're pointing that out and trying to, to um, call us back to think about the ways in which that location that he occupied and the conversations that he's trying to have with the people around him uh, is important to be aware of. Yeah, I'm just thinking about all the images I've had of Jesus my whole life growing up within white evangelicalism and how Howard Thurman is asking me to put those aside. And like even you saying like Jesus was Jewish, he was poor, he comes from a minority group. I'm like, yes, yes, I've heard all that. And I actually, all of that has even been over-spiritualized, right, in my religious background. But the way Howard Thurman writes about it, it, it became very concrete for me in ways that were really new and almost embarrassing for me like mm -hmm. how do i not 
understand this already about Jesus. And one thing that really stu- stood out to me is how him contrasting Jesus with Paul really yeah. blew my mind. Just saying Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul was a person of privilege. Yes, he comes from this, you know, ethnic minority, but he had the privileges of the majority. And um, it really also kind of illuminated the socio-political landscape of what, like, Jesus was so aware of the Roman Empire. He was so aware of how Jewish people were always aware of the oppressive forces. You know, all that, it just... Oh my gosh, it made it so much more real and concrete for me, which makes the actual life and work of Jesus so much more radical and beautiful. So mm-hmm. I was just, I was so, I was so moved by those first few chapters, especially about Jesus and, and Paul too. Yeah. I mean, that's a key detail that you're pointing out. And maybe one of the reasons why this book has not had a prominent place in our spiritual journey because the kind of stuff that Howard Thurman is saying, I think for um, conservative evangelicals are scandalous. Like to say that Jesus was poor, for us in our day, uh, being poor comes with a, a whole set of other labels that get placed on a person, right? There's something wrong with you. You didn't try hard enough. There's some kind of moral deficiency that must mark your life, and, and therefore you are poor. Well, when Thurman says Jesus was poor, like, and th- that's just a historical and theological fact. How do you get around that? You can't get around it, and you have to wrestle with it. And what does it mean to follow a spiritual leader who was poor um, in an American context? I don't know that we have a category for that, for, at least for, for many of us Christians, we don't have a category for that. And then also the fact that Paul was a Roman citizen. In some ways, we think the humanity of these people are erased. Now, we might not agree with that statement theologically, but the expectation is that Paul, being a Roman um, citizen, should not have had a bearing on his theological ideas. Um, And Thurman comes out and says, well, of course it did. How could it not have influenced and shaped his life and his ideas? And, you know, you said... Thurman really inspired a whole generation of activists. And I think it's really important to point out that being specific and concrete about where the people in the Bible are coming from is actually really helpful for activist work, for enacting justice, you know, now for people who are poor, who are Mm. oppressed and who come from, you know, minority ethnic backgrounds. So I think it, it all adds up there. Um, I will say, like, as I continued to read the book, I did notice a little bit of tension in myself just because I am somebody who was born and raised in, like, sort of the dominant culture Christianity, which so often has been on the, you know, on the side of the oppressor, right, than the oppressed. Um, some of the the chapters, I, I really got the sense, like, uh, these are for, these chapters are for the disinherited, and it's by the disinherited and I'm not of that group. And I could just sense a lot of like uh, internal dialogue within myself. Um, Mm. I don't know if I'm making any sense here, but I just know that my own people group, white evangelicals have become really adept at saying like, we're actually the ones with our backs against the wall. And so for me, that narrative of this persecution complex that white evangelicals have really, uh, made it difficult for me to read some of this. Um, not that I think what what Howard Thurman's saying is wrong. I just see how white evangelicals have co-opted some of this language and even use a few of the things he was saying to try and silence uh, 
some, you know, Christian activists that I know in my life. Does this make sense what I'm saying, Peter? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A couple of thoughts come to mind uh, as I as I listen to you. Uh, one is I I, th- I really appreciate your own awareness of your social location. And so there's a way in which when we read a book like this, as much as we would like to say yes and amen to many or most parts of the book, there's also ways in which it's hard for us. This is an in-house conversation that Thurman is having um, with his readers, and it doesn't. A lot of this stuff doesn't really apply to us, or we don't have the kind of access to um, the truths or the ideas that he is trying to explicate here. So I, I think that's really important to to acknowledge and to say, uh, my experience and my viewpoints are going to be limited, and they can only take me so far. Um, but the other side of this also is um, what. There's a way in which um, that persecution narrative is so hard for people to get their minds around, in part because many people really believe this, right? They really believe that they are part of a persecuted minority. Now, there might be some leaders who realize perfectly well what they are doing, that they are are using this narrative to empower and enrich themselves. But for those who genuinely, sincerely believe that they are part of a persecuted minority, uh, that becomes a very powerful part of the narrative by which they organize their lives Mm -hmm. and make sense of their experiences. Yeah, I think for me, in the context of this book, I just, I was aware, like, I think it maybe wasn't as prevalent of a thing when Howard Thurman was writing Mm -hmm. this. I think it is a rather new sort of, of course, you know, the elements have been there, but it's been a huge sort of political pressure point um, to rally the troops to vote and all that is to say we are the ones who are oppressed, right? Um, mm. But I do think specifically, right, there's a section here on um, deception, right, where Howard Thurman is talking about deception and how, you know, ethically it can change you. That, that whole chapter is kind of uncomfortable for me to read because it was almost like from my location, it's you know, I, I have no right to tell people who are oppressed by the state to not utilize mm-hmm. deception, you know, if that makes sense. So that's where I need to be aware as I'm reading, like, this is not, that conversation didn't feel like it was for me, just in in some of those spots, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think this is a good reminder that as we read these books, we don't have to have 100% agreement, or not everything has to resonate perfectly. And we can, questions can arise that we can feel free to ask. I, I would say, I would acknowledge that that chapter on deception was one of the hardest chapters for me as well, because I think there is a way in which um, double talk or um, indeterminacy in the ways that people of color have uh, accommodated themselves to a white supremacist world, that those are um, valuable practices. And I don't mm. think that Hurt Thurman is as simplistic as that, but, mm. but I do want to be able to carve out, reserve some space for the various ways in which resistance might uh, play out. And so those are good questions. And then also to remember that he was writing this book in 1949, that mm. there's a lot of history that has happened since that time. And I think that's going to be helpful to keep in mind, that this is not a timeless book. Yeah, and this is just one thing that I kind of love about the age we're in. You know, as I was reading this, I'm like, I would really love to hear, you know, 
black activists interact with Howard Thurman and hear their critique of it. And it's just an exciting time we get to be in where, like, we do have opportunity to hear these voices. I will also say, like, I know that it's not a timeless book, but one thing that really struck me was, um, again, coming from my background, anti-Semitism is just sort of woven into so much of uh, Mm, the writings that I was um, exposed to. And I was just really struck by um, Howard Thurman just being like, Jesus was Jewish like it you you know like that was his whole thing he was not elevating it but just that's who he was there's I didn't sense any anti-semitism in here at all and it was so refreshing but it is different than how the textbooks I read you know growing up interacted with the person of Jesus and I just really love that like he, he he was so amazing just the way he just honored Jewish culture throughout um this book that's such an important point because he's operating with a completely different, can I say this? Completely different imagination than lots of American mm-hmm. Christians today. And I can't speak for all Christians in America, but I think uh, so prevalent is the view that we are the new Israel, that we have superseded. A supersessionism is a word that we're going to be encountering as we read Willie Jennings' The Christian Imagination. Um, that we have superseded, that everything that, has come, that comes before is irrelevant. And the ways in which Thurman respects, confers dignity upon the history of Scripture and God's people throughout history, that's a a really helpful thing for us to to observe and learn from. Yeah, I just thought it was beautiful. And, you know, maybe the last thing I'll say about the book, it did leave me wanting more in like a positive way because I... um, Throughout the book, I really sense the deep work he's done around his own belovedness. And you had mentioned when talking about them, him that, you know, he called himself a poet. He called himself a mystic. Um, and it just made me be like, I want to go explore more of his work in those areas um, just to see, like, what were his practices? What gave him, you know, what Dr. King calls the strength to love, right? Where, how did he fill up his own well of belovedness, you know, that he's obviously operating out of in this book? He says hard truths out of a very, like, um, essentially beloved and secure place. You know, you can just sense that in his book. So I'm like, man, now I want to go and, and see, like, how did he do that? I just want to know some of his spiritual practices. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to research that a bit. Yeah, that's a fascinating question because I think that we love the activism that has come out of Thurman's work. And so uh, for many of us, we have no problems praising the work of people like Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement. But behind that lay some of the the theological innovations and hard-hitting questions that Thurman was asking. And so if we can uncover some of those questions and if we can re- rediscover some of those theological trajectories, uh, what gifts, what, what help might we find mm-hmm. um, there? I think that's a really, really interesting um, point to consider. And I think of, I think of some recent, and it's, I think it's one of the reasons why Thurman has been neglected for so long. He's not a very well-known figure. Uh, and yet there has been sort of this recent renaissance of biographies about, a few, about uh, Thurman. And so there's a, a book by Paul Harvey, uh, a recent short biography. And then there's a longer biography uh, written by Peter Eisenstadt called Against the Hounds of Hell. And those are, I think, really interesting um, magisterial works, uh, especially mm-hmm. Eisenstadt's, that through which you can learn about some of the, the writings and, and works of Thurman, and, he, and they will contextualize them too. 
And then Theremin himself was a mystic and a poet, so we're going to be encountering some of his prayers, maybe some of his poems in the course of our uh, cohort liturgies that we have throughout the year. And then, as you mentioned, Theremin wrote about some of these things. Like he's got a book on disciplines of the spirit mm. and different uh, meditations that he wrote down as well. And so there's a, there's a treasure trove to be explored, for sure. That's so exciting. So exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe the last thing I'll say is that the, the structure of the book, if, we, if there can be some sense of a roadmap here, Theremin is identifying at the very outset of the book three hounds of hell that the disinherited fall prey to. And so they are uh, fear, deception, which we talked about, and hatred. And then the last chapter on love is, uh, is a description of an alternate way, um, mm-hmm. the way of Jesus. And I think that's going to be helpful as folks work their way through the book to be thinking about those different categories. Mm-hmm. But the overarching frame um, that Thurman is writing is using as well to say, these are the hounds of hell, but there's another way. There's a better way. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for choosing this book for us, Peter. I really, really enjoyed it. And I just, I was like 100% engaged at all times with it, which is always fun as a reader to be in that space. Awesome. So, and I think it'd be really fun to see the conversation that the book sparks for um, our community. And I think this is a book that we're going to be referring to time and again over the course of the coming year, too. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversations. Thank you. Well, that was our first ever podcast. I should note that this is a new thing we're trying this year as a way to create more space for more reflection and conversation together. And that means like a lot of other things around here, we'll be learning as we go and trying to have fun along the way. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.